0: Chapter One of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You remember three years ago my telling you I had let myself in for painting a couple of Kentish squireen. I really could not understand what had possessed me to say yes to that man. A friend of mine had brought him one day to my studio, Mr. Oak of Oakhurst, that was the name on his card. He was a very tall, very well-made, very good-looking young man, with a beautiful fair complexion, beautiful fair mustache, and beautifully fitting clothes. Absolutely like a hundred other young men you can see any day in the park, and absolutely uninteresting from the crown of his head to the tip of his boots. Mr. Oak, who had been a lieutenant in the guards before his marriage, was evidently extremely uncomfortable on finding himself in a studio. He felt misgivings about a man who could wear a velvet coat in town, but at the same time he was nervously anxious not to treat me in the very least like a tradesman. He walked round my place, looked at everything with the most scrupulous attention, stammered out a few complimentary phrases, and then, looking at his friend for assistance, tried to come to the point, but failed. The point, which the friend kindly explained, was that Mr. Oak was desirous to know whether my engagements would allow of my painting him and his wife, and what my terms would be. The poor man blushed perfectly crimson during this explanation as if he had come with the most improper proposal, and I noticed, the only interesting thing about him, a very odd, nervous frown between his eyebrows, a perfect double gash, a thing that usually means something abnormal. A mad doctor of my acquaintance calls it the maniac frown. When I had answered, he suddenly burst out into rather confused explanations. His wife, Mrs. Oak, had seen some of my pictures, paintings, portraits at the, the what do you call it, academy. She had, in short, they had made a very great impression upon her. Mrs. Oak had a great taste for art. She was, in short, extremely desirous of having her portrait and his painted by me, etc., "'My wife,' he suddenly added, "'is a remarkable woman. "'I don't know whether you will think her handsome. "'She isn't exactly, you know, but she's awfully strange.' "'And Mr. Oak of Oakhurst gave a little sigh and frowned that curious frown, "'as if so long a speech and so decided an expression of opinion had cost him a great deal. "'It was a rather unfortunate moment in my career.' A very influential sitter of mine, you remember the fat lady with the crimson curtain behind her, had come to the conclusion, or been persuaded, that I had painted her old and vulgar, which in fact she was. Her whole clique had turned against me, the newspapers had taken up the matter, and for the moment I was considered as a painter to whose brushes no woman would trust her reputation things were going badly so i snapped but too gladly at mr oak's offer and settled to go down to oakhurst at the end of a fortnight but the door had scarcely closed upon my future sitter when I began to regret my rashness, and my disgust at the thought of wasting a whole summer upon the portrait of a totally uninteresting Kentish squire and his doubtless equally uninteresting wife grew greater and greater as the time for execution approached. I remember so well the frightful temper in which I got into the train for Kent, and the even more frightful temper in which I got out of it at the little station nearest to Oakhurst. It was pouring floods. I felt a comfortable fury at the thought that my canvases would get nicely wetted before Mr. Oaks' coachman had packed them on top of the wagonette. It was just what served me right for coming to this confounded place to paint these confounded people. We drove off in the steady downpour the roads were a mass of yellow mud the endless flat grazing grounds under the oak trees after having been burned to cinders in a long drought were turned into a hideous brown sop the country seemed intolerably monotonous my spirits sank lower and lower i began to meditate upon the modern gothic country house with the usual amount of morris furniture liberty rugs and moody novels to which i was doubtless being taken my fancy pictured very vividly the five or six little oaks that man certainly must have at least five children the aunts and sisters-in-law and cousins the eternal routine of afternoon tea and lawn-tennis Above all, it pictured Mrs. Oak, the bouncing, well informed, model housekeeper, electioneering, charity organizing young woman whom such an individual as Mr. Oak would regard in the light of a remarkable woman. And my spirits sank within me, and I cursed my avarice in accepting the commission, my spiritlessness in not throwing it over while yet there was time we had meanwhile driven into a large park or rather a long succession of grazing grounds dotted about with large oaks under which the sheep were huddled together for shelter from the rain in the distance blurred by the sheets of rain was a line of low hills with a jagged fringe of bluish firs and a solitary windmill it must be a good mile and a half since we had passed a house and there was none to be seen in the distance nothing but the undulation of sere grass sopped brown beneath the huge blackish oak trees and whence arose from all sides a vague disconsolate bleating at last the road made a sudden bend and disclosed what was evidently the home of my sitter it was not what i had expected in a dip in the ground a large red-brick house with the rounded gables and high chimney-stacks of the time of james the a forlorn vast place set in the midst of the pasture-land with no trace of garden before it and only a few large trees indicating the possibility of one to the back no lawn either but on the other side of the sandy dip which suggested a filled-up moat a huge oak short hollow with wreathing blasted black branches upon which only a handful of leaves shook in the rain it was not at all what i had pictured to myself the home of mr oak of oakhurst my host received me in the hall a large place panelled and carved hung round with portraits up to its curious ceiling, vaulted and ribbed like the inside of a ship's hull. He looked even more blond and pink and white, more absolutely mediocre, in his tweed suit, and also, I thought, even more good-natured and duller. He took me into his study, a room hung round with whips and fishing tackle in place of books, while my things were being carried upstairs, it was very damp, and a fire was smouldering. He gave the embers a nervous kick with his foot and said, as he offered me a cigar, You must excuse my not introducing you at once to Missus Oak. My wife, in short, I believe my wife is asleep. Is Missus Oak unwell? I asked, a sudden hope flashing across me that I might be off the whole matter. Oh! "'No. Alice is quite well. At least, quite as well as she usually is. My wife,' he added after a minute and in a very decided tone, "'does not enjoy very good health. A nervous constitution. Oh, no. Not at all ill. Nothing at all serious, you know. Only nervous,' the doctors say. "'Mustn't be worried or excited.' the doctors say, requires lots of repose, that sort of thing. There was a dead pause. This man depressed me. I knew not why. He had a listless, puzzled look, very much out of keeping with his evident, admirable health and strength. I suppose you are a great sportsman? I asked from sheer despair, nodding in the direction of the whips and guns and fishing rods. "'Oh, no, not now. I was once.' "'I have given up all that,' he answered, "'standing with his back to the fire "'and staring at the polar bear beneath his feet. "'I... I have no time for all that now,' he added, "'as if an explanation were due. "'A married man, you know. "'Would you like to come up to your rooms?' "'He suddenly interrupted himself.' I have had one arranged for you to paint in. My wife said you would prefer a north light. If that one doesn't suit, you can have your choice of any other." I followed him out of the study, through the vast entrance hall. In less than a minute I was no longer thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Oak, and the boredom of doing their likeness. I was simply overcome by the beauty of this house, which I had pictured modern and philistine it was without exception the most perfect example of an old english manor house that i had ever seen the most magnificent intrinsically and the most admirably preserved out of the huge hall with its immense fireplace of delicately carved and inlaid grey and black stone and its rows of family portraits reaching from the wainscoting to the oaken ceiling vaulted and ribbed like a ship's hull opened the wide flat-stepped staircase the parapet surmounted at intervals by heraldic monsters the wall covered with oak carvings of coats of arms leafage and little mythological scenes painted a faded red and blue and picked out with tarnished gold which harmonized with the tarnished blue and gold of the stamped leather that reached the oak cornice again delicately tinted and gilded the beautifully damascened suits of court armour looked without being at all rusty as if no modern hand had ever touched them the very rugs under foot were of sixteenth-century persian make the only things of to-day were the big bunches of flowers and ferns arranged in majolica dishes upon the landings everything was perfectly silent Only from below came the chimes, silvery like an Italian palace fountain of an old-fashioned clock. It seemed to me that I was being led through the palace of the sleeping beauty. What a magnificent house! I exclaimed, as I followed my host through a long corridor, also hung with leather, Wainscoted with carvings and furnished with big wedding coffers and chairs that looked as if they came out of some Van Dyck portrait, in my mind was the strong impression that all this was natural, spontaneous, that it had about it nothing of the picturesqueness which swell studios have taught to rich and aesthetic houses. Mister Oak misunderstood me. It is a nice old place, he said, but it's too large for us. You see, my wife's health does not allow for our having many guests, and there are no children. I thought I noticed a vague complaint in his voice, and he evidently was afraid there might have seemed something of the kind, for he added immediately, I don't care for children, one jack straw, you know, myself, can't understand how anyone can for my part. If ever a man went out of his way to tell a lie, I said to myself, Mr. Oak of Oakhurst was doing so at the present moment. When he had left me, in one of the two enormous rooms that were allotted to me, I threw myself into an armchair, and tried to focus the extraordinary imaginative impression which this house had given me. I am very susceptible to such impressions, and besides the sort of spasm of imaginative interest sometimes given to me by certain rare and eccentric personalities i know nothing more subduing than the charm quieter and less analytic of any sort of complete and out-of-the-common-run sort of house to sit in a room like the one i was sitting in with the figures of the tapestry glimmering gray and lilac and purple in the twilight the great bed columned and curtained looming in the middle and the embers reddening beneath the overhanging mantelpiece of inlaid italian stonework a vague scent of rose-leaves and spices put into the china bowls by the hands of ladies long since dead filling the room while the clock downstairs sent up every now and then its faint silvery tune of forgotten days To do this is a special kind of voluptuousness, peculiar and complex and indescribable, like the half-drunkenness of opium or hashish, and which, to be conveyed to others in any sense as I feel it, would require a genius, subtle and heady, like that of Baudelaire. After I had dressed for dinner, I resumed my place in the armchair, and resumed also my reverie letting all these impressions of the past, which seemed faded like the figures of the heiress, but still warm like the embers in the fireplace, still sweet and subtle like the perfume of the dead rose-leaves and broken spices in the china bowls, permeate me and go to my head. Of oak and oak's wife I did not think. I seemed quite alone, isolated from the world, separated from it, in this exotic enjoyment gradually the embers grew paler the figures in the tapestry more shadowy the columned and curtained bed loomed out vaguer the room seemed to fill with grayness and my eyes wandered to the mullioned bow window beyond whose panes between whose heavy stonework stretched a grayish-brown expanse of sear and sodden park grass dotted with big oaks while far off, behind a jagged fringe of dark Scotch firs, the wet sky was suffused with the blood-red of the sunset. Between the falling of the raindrops from the ivy outside, there came, fainter or sharper, the recurring bleating of the lambs separated from their mothers, a forlorn, quavering, eerie little cry. I started up at a sudden rap at my door, "'Haven't you heard the gong for dinner?' asked Mr. Oaks' voice. "'I had completely forgotten his existence.'" End of chapter 1